Welcome to episode four of this four-part Oxford Sparks podcast series, Vaccines from Concept to Clinic. My name is Dr. Sean Elias of the Jenner Institute, University of Oxford, and in this final episode, we will be discussing how we go about running human clinical vaccine trials. The first step in any clinical trial, from a scientific point of view, is to generate the trial protocol. You need to calculate how many volunteers you need to recruit, what age groups you need to recruit, and what vaccine dose you need to use to get the best immune response possible. A typical vaccine trial, using the viral vectored vaccines produced at the Jenner Institute, in a prime boost regimen, would typically involve the recruitment of around 24 volunteers, between the ages of 18 and 45, and typically divided between four groups, with around eight per group, and typically you would test two different doses of each vaccine. Each volunteer would be given an initial priming vaccination at day zero, and then eight weeks later would receive a booster vaccine. The last visit for each volunteer is typically around five months. Such a trial design allows us to see the peak of the immune response to the vaccine for each of the volunteers, and allows us to determine whether there is a significant difference between the different groups. Whenever you mention human clinical trials, a number of questions often arise. What do they entail? Who volunteers for such trials? And what do individuals get out of volunteering? Well, to answer these and many other questions, I will now pass you over to Natalie. Hello, my name is Natalie Lella and I'm the Volunteer Recruitment Coordinator at the Jenner Institute, University of Oxford. My job is to recruit healthy individuals to participate in our trials. It's very important to use a variety of ways to advertise our research, as there is no specific group of people who volunteer for trials. Adverts are both online and in the form of a printed sheet, which is distributed to hundreds of sites in and around Oxford two or three times a week. People may also see our posters around the city, from college common rooms to libraries and GP surgeries, so it is important to have a variety of presences in lots of different locations. Social media is a relatively new resource we've embraced, but one that is becoming increasingly more powerful. We have a Facebook page and a Twitter feed where followers can be updated of developments in trials and receive details of new trials opening for recruitment. In addition to this, we also have a healthy volunteer database where people can subscribe and stay updated via email. We attend freshers' fairs and hold public open days and from time to time will advertise on local radio. For trials that have high interest to the general public, for example our recent Ebola trials, the media coverage helps hugely to spread the word. Finally, word of mouth is one of our most powerful recruitment tools. Volunteers who have taken part in trials with us often recommend the experience to friends, and this is how many of our participants first come into contact with us. Our adverts usually invite people to visit our website, which is where details of all recruiting trials are listed. There will be a few basic facts about each trial, but anyone potentially interested will be encouraged to read the full trial information sheet so that they have a good idea of what participation involves. The volunteer can then register their interest and answer a pre-screening questionnaire online. These responses come into a central database where I can easily see anyone eligible to be invited to a face-to-face screening. Screenings are booked with trial clinicians and usually last around 90 minutes. They are an opportunity for potential participants to find out more and ask questions about the trial and for the doctor to inquire about the volunteer's medical history. If the volunteer wishes to go ahead with the rest of the screening, he or she will be asked to complete a consent form, which allows the doctor to perform a medical exam, including a blood test, in order to gather more information and determine eligibility, but also confirm that the volunteer is happy to go ahead and be enrolled to the trial, should they be eligible. 
This is not the only time consent is taken, though. Verbal consent will be checked at each vaccination and follow-up appointment to ensure that the participant is happy to volunteer. This is not the only time consent is taken, though. Verbal consent will be checked at each vaccination and follow-up appointment to ensure that the participant is always happy to volunteer. A participant can withdraw from a trial at any time without giving reason, although it is obviously useful for us to know why someone decides to withdraw. After the screening, blood samples will be sent to our lab for processing and the volunteer's GP will be contacted so that his or her medical history can be obtained to ensure there are no contraindications to prevent the volunteer's participation in the trial. There are two main questions that I'm asked by potential volunteers. The first is, will I get paid? And the second, is it safe? All volunteers are reimbursed for their participation. If, following screening, it is decided they are not eligible to participate, then they receive a payment for the time at the screening. For volunteers who are enrolled and completed the trial, the payment, including screening, will be at the end of their participation in the study. Occasionally, reimbursement is paid in instalments throughout the trial, but this is generally safe for studies that last for more than 9 to 12 months, or if the trial has lots of visits in a very small space of time. With regard to safety, each trial is different in what it involves, from the vaccines used to the dosages being given. However, all trials go through the same preclinical work, regulatory process and ethical considerations, whereby the primary aim is to ascertain the safety of any vaccine. Obviously, as our trials are phase one trials, and so often testing a vaccine for the first time in humans, the safety of a vaccine can never be guaranteed. But the preclinical work carried out can give us a good idea of what we can expect to see in our volunteers. As I mentioned, many of our trials are first in human trials of a vaccine, but we also run trials where we are researching vaccines already given to humans, but in different doses or frequencies. In both these cases, the volunteer would visit clinic on the day of enrolment, have medical exams performed and blood taken, and will then receive the required dose of the vaccine. After being monitored in clinic for an hour or so, they will be allowed to leave, but will be asked to complete a diary each day to record any side effects they experience following receipt of the vaccine. Depending on the trial protocol, the volunteer will be booked to return to clinic a few days later, again to be assessed by the clinical team and blood to be taken if necessary. Further follow-up visits will be booked for specific days after the vaccination, in order for the volunteer to be medically checked and to take blood, which is then examined in the lab to see how the volunteer's immune system is responding to the vaccine. Other trials seek to test the efficacy of our vaccines. Other trials seek to test the efficacy of our vaccines. These are challenge trials where volunteers are given a vaccine and then at a later time point will be infected with a disease. Now, for obvious safety reasons, this can only be done for select diseases such as malaria. Other trials seek to test the efficacy of our vaccines. These are challenge trials where volunteers are given a vaccine and then at a later time point will be infected with the disease. Now, for obvious safety reasons, this can only be done for select diseases such as malaria, for which we have specific lab strains that are well characterised and drug susceptible. For malaria challenge trials, volunteers are closely monitored for a period of up to three weeks after they've been infected with malaria. During this period, we check volunteers for both symptoms of the disease, but also monitor for the number of parasites in their blood, using a method called quantitative PCR. If a volunteer does display symptoms, they, they will be immediately treated with anti-malaria drugs. Sometimes, though, a volunteer will show symptoms of malaria through their blood test, but may not be exhibiting any physical symptoms. Again, if this is the case, the participant will be treated with anti-malarials once the infection is confirmed to be progressing. 
In a malaria challenge, tested vaccines can give different levels of protection from a delayed parasitemia to sterile protection where no trace of malaria parasites is detected at all. The latter, in a significant proportion of volunteers, is the main goal. A final question that I'm sometimes asked about our trials is why we are looking for healthy people to participate. People often want to know why we aren't trying a vaccine out on someone who is already suffering from the disease or are in a high-risk environment in which they are likely to catch this disease. The simple answer to this is that, as I mentioned earlier, the stage of trials we are performing is to assess the safety of particular vaccines or vaccine doses. It is therefore important that we do not test our vaccines on people who have any immune deficiencies or pre-existing medical conditions that may mean they will be more susceptible to the side effects of a vaccine. Also, most of our vaccines are prophylactic, meaning they are typically designed to be given to healthy individuals prior to exposure rather than as a treatment post-exposure. When research has been performed on a healthy population and shows a vaccine to be safe, it can then be used in trials on volunteers with either relevant medical conditions or who are at high risk of infection from the disease of interest. Showing that our vaccines work in clinical trials here in Oxford is just the first part of the process. In the case of malaria vaccines, proof of principle in the form of efficacy in a British population gives us justification for further studies in endemic populations. For vaccines against the major malaria-causing parasite Plasmodium falciparum, this would typically involve testing the vaccine in sub-Saharan Africa, whilst for Plasmodium vivax, you would typically test in Southeast Asia. Africa and Asia are big continents and have wide-ranging genetic diversity, not only in the human population, but in their parasite population as well. It is important, therefore, to test your vaccine in a number of countries and regions, as both immunogenicity and vaccine effectiveness against different strains may vary. One good example of this is a vaccine candidate against the blood stage of malaria, AMA1, which was tested with the adjuvant CPG, which is designed to help boost immune responses. In American volunteers, this adjuvant significantly boosted responses over the antigen alone. However, when used in volunteers in Mali, it showed no such effect. For malaria vaccines, it is also important to test your vaccine in the correct age group. For malaria, the most at-risk group are children, typically under the age of 5. The malaria vaccine candidate Emitrap, which was developed at the Jenner Institute, has been tested in a wide variety of age groups, including babies of 10 weeks old, infants 5 to 12 months, and young children 2 to 6 years. During such studies, it was observed that younger vaccinees actually produced a better relative immune response compared to adults. Once a vaccine has shown significant safety and efficacy in an endemic population, it may be considered for licensure. In most cases, it must show protection in a significant proportion of those vaccinated, and for a number of years. However, this may be slightly relaxed for particularly in-demand or difficult-to-treat targets. To date, for malaria, only one vaccine, RTSS, developed in the US, has been licensed. This vaccine is produced by GSK, which is a large and well-known pharmaceutical company, which can manufacture its own stocks for the vaccine. In the case of vaccines developed by academic institutions, vaccines are often licensed out to companies for production. In most cases, newly licensed vaccines, particularly those targeting diseases prominent in third world countries, will be subsidised to keep costs low and to allow for vaccine campaigns to be rolled out. In the case of major widespread infectious diseases, the costs for such vaccines may be covered by a country's government, due to the fact the economic downstream benefits 
of mass vaccination campaigns outweighs the initial cost. Whilst endemic populations are often the ones most in need of vaccines, another population to target is obviously tourists. Tourists from wealthy countries will always be happy to pay more for a vaccine if it allows them to go on holiday to a more exotic location. Through charging more, companies can use this additional money to reduce the cost of the vaccines that then go to the actual people in need in the endemic countries that the tourists are visiting. Thanks again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this series and have learned some useful facts about vaccines from concept to clinic. For more information about the Jenner Institute, our clinical trials and the research we do, please check out our website at www.jenner.ac.uk.